How many McKinsey employees or former employees have you spoken with? I haven't counted. Um, Yeah, dozens. I I mean, a lot. Ian McDougall reports for ProPublica. Is there a type? I don't think so necessarily. There is a type of, I think, true believer there. He spent the last year or so examining the inner workings of this one very prominent consulting firm, which has found itself suddenly thrust into the middle of the presidential race. The true believer type is actually quite a bit um, like, I think, at least the stereotypes of Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is one of McKinsey's most prominent alums. You know, has a fairly technocratic attitude, believes that problems are fixable, and believes in the, the virtue of, of smart people putting their minds to tough problems and fixing them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be misapplied, certainly. Ian has watched as Pete Buttigieg struggles to explain his relationship with the firm. That's what employees call McKinsey on the inside, simply the firm. He's really moved from, you know, sort of uh, neutral or, or, or maybe a little bit positive stance to reacting quite forcefully to some of the more recent stories. He said something along the lines of McKinsey is as amoral as um, any company in the business world, which is, you know, uh, true, but uh, it's it's a striking thing for, for him to say. He wasn't saying stuff like that before. Not that I've seen. Buttigieg was describing his former employer as amoral after a slew of news reports from the last year showed the firm was eager to work with problematic clients, especially abroad. The Saudi Arabian royal family, state-owned companies in China, a disgraced Ukrainian politician. How should people understand your values as they map onto the values of that firm, particularly because you've highlighted your time there? It's something important that people should understand about who you are and what you've, what you've learned about the world. Yeah. Well, first of all, the, the criticism is well-deserved. I can think of at least four times in the decade or so since I left that I've uh, opened up the newspaper and seen them doing something that was upsetting. To be fair, these reports about McKinsey, they've come out years after Buttigieg left the firm. But these persistent questions forced him into releasing a list of clients he had back then. No foreign governments here. There was Blue Cross Blue Shield, Best Buy. And then you have this string of federal agencies. You've got the Environmental Protection Agency, the United States Department of Energy, the United States Postal Service, the Department of Defense. When you saw that list, did it surprise you? No, not really. Ian says this list... It's important not because of what it says about Mayor Pete, but because of what it says about McKinsey. He was there at the moment when McKinsey really was re-entering the uh, U.S. public sector, in particular a lot of federal agencies. I mean, it started a little bit before him and it really took off after he left. More and more, you'll be able to find McKinsey and other private companies working with almost every government agency. It's a $9.5 billion a year industry and growing. So what happens when a company like McKinsey tries to fix the public sector? Ian found it doesn't always work out. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. How did McKinsey start? Like, the, if you look up McKinsey on Google, there's a lot of talk about the McKinsey way. What even is that? McKinsey was founded in the, the 20s, but it didn't really become the McKinsey that it is today until, I'm probably going to get the date wrong, in the 30s or 40s, uh, a guy named Marvin Bauer, who was, the, I think, the longest-serving head of the firm um, and looms very large there still. He came in and he really came up with a set of values. It's you know, things like the client comes first. And we only deal with top management, the C-suite chief executives. And really believed, and I think sincerely, and I think from everything I've seen, uh, more or less practiced what he preached or tried to, that you know it was a firm that should remain of moderate size, that should uh, should hire only these really great people who are in a particular mold, who are really smart, and should really stick to those values, even if that meant turning down work, which they used to pride themselves on. Even 10 years ago, people who worked there said, yeah, it was a point of pride that we don't need to do this kind of project. That has changed over the last 10 years. Um, huh. So what exactly do they do? The word consulting <laughs> is basically meaningless. Yes. So tell me what a McKinsey consultant does. Traditionally, and this is still the bulk of their work as I understand it, you would have a corporation, a client, you know, their big clients are, are things like U.S. Steel or I think Sprint is another one. And they have a problem. Their supply chains are tangled or profits are sagging. And they bring in these smart kids overseen by a partner who, you know, from everything I've been told, operates more like a, a salesman or a pitchman and, and is not necessarily all that involved. There might be a more junior partner involved in the day-to-day, -day, but there's a you know, manager is usually pretty young overseeing the, the sort of the, the lowest uh, tier of the associates and business uh, analysts. So you hire worker bees, basically. Yeah. Those uh, folks then dig into the data. There's sort of this whole field really comes from this idea of management science back in the turn of the century. The idea that you can, uh, you, you can observe the data of a workplace and, and try to understand through that what's wrong and how to optimize the place. And, and that's more or less what they do with, you know, more sophistication than would have been done 50 years ago. But they, you know, they go through the data. They usually do these big workplace surveys. They call the Organizational Health Index to measure attitudes and concerns of the, the workers. Uh, they will do interviews, focus groups. And 
the point, they would say, and this is the point to a meaningful extent, is to try to diagnose the problems there, what's causing the cost overruns, how can they lower costs? And so that can be sometimes unpleasant, firing people, things like that, or it can be quite good. So how did McKinsey start working with the government? You know, they they have been there all along the way. So, for example, they really were instrumental in setting up the uh, I guess what later would be called the the military industrial complex, but but the the contractor industrial complex, I guess, in the the fifties, working with NASA, and as I understand it, they were part of what set a big part of what set NASA on the course of really working more with contractors, and not hiring as much in house, which then became a a, a more broadly um, applied principle in, in various parts of government. They did that quite successfully, and they worked with cities and states, understand it, up until around the, the early 70s when they started to back away from it, at least in the U.S. What changed things at McKinsey is that an employee was caught awarding contracts to the firm from his new post in the New York City budget office. The scandal seems kind of small by today's standards, but back then, the optics were enough to scare McKinsey off public contracts almost completely. It was a huge, huge scandal because he was, you know, it looked, it looked really bad. It looked like McKinsey was, had got their inside man and that, um, and that person was, you know, feeding them contracts. It, maybe it turned out that wasn't the case, but, but I, I think they looked at it and said, we don't, we don't need this kind of attention. They're very averse to, to the, certainly bad publicity, but um, really publicity at all. So they backed off the public contracts for a little while, but how did they start to get involved again with government? In the U.S., it really came with this this dramatic growth strategy they had, and and you know you need to find new sectors to move into. McKinsey started consulting with the FBI, with the Department of Defense, state governments, and in 2014, the firm decided to branch out into new territory, correctional facilities. Rikers Island is a broken institution for adolescents. New York City was on the verge of a federal investigation over the high levels of violence in its infamous Rikers Island jail. Preet Bharara, a U.S. attorney at the time, he compared it to Lord of the Flies. They are entitled to be detained safely and in accordance with their constitutional rights, not consigned to a corrections crucible that seems more inspired by Lord of the Flies than any legitimate philosophy of humane detention. That's when the mayor decided to give $1.8 million to McKinsey to study ways to lower the levels of violence in the jail. Bringing in consultants, it at least gave the appearance that the city was trying to take the problem seriously. It's interesting to hear you talk about McKinsey's approach to Rikers because you said (laughs) they're going to come in and do what they normally do at a company, which is, you know, do this survey, find out how things are working. But It seems like a jail would operate very differently than a traditional workplace. Had they ever operated in that environment before? They had not, no. And uh, you see it from quite early on, this sort of odd disjunction, I'm not sure quite what the right word is, where you know, they're, they're trying to sell this organizational health survey to the uh, then commissioner, Joseph Ponce. And the successes they point to are things like the increasing productivity at a strip mine run by a chemical company um, using the organizational health survey and how much you know they saved $180 million for this. And it's, it's sort of like, well, okay, but what does that have to do with... Decreasing violence at a jail. Right. They had problems from pretty early on when they were 
trying to put together this reform plan, which they ultimately called the 14-point plan or the anti-violence reform agenda, different names for it. They they spoke, you know, they did this survey, they spoke to a number of corrections officials, focus groups, all of that, looked at the data, talked to some experts. But even though they'd been told that they should by an expert they were working with at the beginning of the project, they didn't talk to inmates uh, at the time. They, they would later talk to inmates, but they didn't talk to inmates, they didn't talk to clinic staff, they didn't talk to other folks who had direct insights into what was causing violence, what was driving violence. Who and did they talk to? Really just corrections officials. So so that's everything from, you know, corrections officers, the jail guards, up to, you know, the senior executive staff. Eventually, the firm recommended housing inmates in a new way, monitoring them closely to prevent violence. They called the new housing restart units, and they helped the city try the idea out. But there was a problem. The inmates housed in these units were some of the least violent in the jail. McKinsey wrote a report, proposed a solution that they would implement. When they came in to implement that solution, they stacked the deck so that that solution would be a success. That, well, they, they would not say that last part. But what happened was this first set, they, they admit it was intentional. They say, but we were transparent about that. They weren't. They put together a slide deck for Joe Pont, the commissioner who presented it to the Board of Correction, the Oversight Board, which says, you know, the numbers here were amazing compared to the rest of this jail where we're doing this and compared to DOC overall, that only makes sense if you have a representative sample of general population in there. They say after that point that they stopped doing this, they, they, that the idea was they would now have a general population. You know, essentially, the folks who are running the housing process, which McKinsey then handed over to the Department of Correction, they said, hey, look, this works. Keep, keep the troublemakers out. Uh, the numbers stay down and uh, the c- city hall stays off our back. Everyone's happy. Just keep doing that. And, uh, you know, it wasn't perfect. There were certainly fights in those units. You know, it's guesswork as to who's going to be, you know, uh, get in trouble or or not. Did any of what they proposed actually work? No, I mean, violence has, you know, maybe it's like occasionally blipped down a little bit, but it's very steadily gone up. Just this past October, the Monitor put out this very scathing report saying, you know, basically nothing is moving in the right direction. Use of force there in that case is just getting worse. Progress is not really being made. Eventually, the city ended up spending how much? It was about with twenty-seven point five million. Twenty-seven point five million. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's a, in fairness, a small part of the DOC budget, but that could have, you know, uh, people there said, uh, people who were there at the time said that could have, you know, overhauled one of these completely broken down jails. You could, you could do a lot with twenty-seven point five million. So this is one example of how McKinsey works when they come into a public infrastructure. I guess. We should make clear that it's far from the only example. You've also reported on how McKinsey is involved with ICE and dealing with migrants and and making suggestions that, you know, the ICE reduce its budget for food, for instance, for migrants. And we should also say it's not just McKinsey. There are other consulting companies working with the government, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Deloitte, which has been written about some, has a huge contract with ICE. The thing that, that is a, a little troubling about McKinsey is they've gone well out of their way to pretend they didn't do what they did there. That's just the business model and, and, and following the, the Google, you know, evil kind of thing. No one wants to say we're doing projects that people would consider politically controversial or socially controversial because c- we want to make a bunch of money. They made $23 million off of the ICE contract. The truth is just those kinds of companies, they have to make a choice between do we stay out of the controversial stuff or the stuff that might 
you know, upset our own employees or upset a large cross-section of society and lose some money? Or, or do we want to do those things and, and make the money? And while McKinsey used to pride itself on turning down work, Ian says that ethos has changed. Instead, the firm has gone from simply advising their clients to implementing the changes they recommend. And they do it for a simple reason. It extends the firm's contracts. Ian's reporting shows a kind of symbiosis that's developed. Consultants looking to make more money, just as public institutions are cutting back. That is has, has been a growing phenomenon as especially more conservative administrations in states and so on have, have tried to slash you know, state workforces and, and reduce them. And so they're left often with the need for someone to come in to do, especially when there's big one-off projects, for example, the um, Affordable Care Act or, or changes in Medicaid and Medicare, which can lead to problems because those are things that you really need to have in-house expertise on going forward and indefinitely. And and although it's been a, a big boon for consulting firms, including McKinsey, it hasn't necessarily always worked out that well. No, it's interesting you say that because I look at the government work McKinsey has done. And I think about that idea that the client comes first. And I think it could be problematic because when you're a consultant coming in to advise a government and the client comes first, but you're also trying to continue your contract and keep making money, it disincentivizes you from telling hard truths. Absolutely. And that's, you know, there have been a number of people I've heard of who in the last, say, three or four years have have left in part because they're troubled by that precise dynamic where, you know, they they certainly allow for internal dissent. They don't, you know, if, if you're on a consulting team, you can speak up if you're troubled by something. But in the end, yeah, they've, they've more or less made the decision increasingly so that they're going to take the jobs, even if they're things they would have turned down in the past, even if they're things that are going to be controversial um, and um, uh, lead to a lot of, uh, you know, people both at the firm and outside being upset um, about the work they did. Ian McDougall is a reporter at ProPublica. And that's the show. Before we go, amazing news. Do you want to listen to What Next at home on your Alexa? I do every morning. We have built a new Alexa skill. You can just say, Alexa, enable What Next to enable the skill on your Alexa device and begin playing the show. To play it after that, you can just say, Alexa, play What Next. How easy is that? What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, Mary Wilson, and Jason DeLeon. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.